0: Psalm 11, for the director of music of David. In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their bows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Gordon. It's great to be with you here this morning. It's great to have the kids in as well. During the school holidays, we get to learn together as a big family from God's word. Uh, Recently, uh, I had cousins from Hong Kong come over, and as we caught up with each other, I discovered the world of Cantonese hip-hop. Uh, did you know that there's a growing hip-hop scene in Hong Kong? Uh, by the way, kids, if you don't know what hip-hop is, uh, ask Pippi. <coughs> it turns out that my cousin's boyfriend is an amateur rapper in Hong Kong and also quite quite the hip-hop dancer. I even watched uh, a movie. I watched this movie. This is Hong Kong's version of Step Up. Again, kids, if you don't know what Step Up is, ask Pippi. <coughs> but these are things you probably wouldn't normally associate with each other, Hong Kong and hip-hop. But when you think a little bit more about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, Hong Kong's a very urban city, lots of young people. Why not? Uh, I asked the internet about other things that you wouldn't normally associate with each other, but do work. So here we go. Chocolate and chili. Uh, did you know the combination of chocolate and chili might seem odd? but they complement each other because the heat of the chili enhances the richness of the chocolate. That's what the internet says. Uh, Who actually likes chocolate and chili? Yeah, a few people, yeah. Uh, How about this? Computer programming and poetry. Did you know there's a creative side to programming? Writing elegant, efficient code can be akin to crafting poetry. Who would have thought? (laughs) I think the psalm for this morning, Psalm 11, could fit into this category of things you wouldn't associate with each other. Uh, There's the opening, verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge, David says. This psalm begins with this picture of refuge, of safety. But if you look at how the psalm ends, particularly verse 6, we get a very different picture, don't we? Fiery coals, burning sulfur. A scorching wind sounds like lyrics from a heavy metal song. How do these two images go together? And how are they part of the same psalm? Uh, brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us this morning. And so we have to work a bit harder to seek God's understanding. Uh, my old pastor always used to, tell, used to tell me that when things seem a bit odd in the Bible, or when, things, when we feel a bit uncomfortable with what the Bible is saying, it's always an opportunity It's always an opportunity to humble ourselves and to see what God is trying to say to us, and even to ask Him to change our incorrect understandings of who He is so that we might know Him better and trust Him more. So let's pray for that now. Holy God, thank you for this word that you've given us this morning in Psalm 11. We pray that you would reveal to us by your Spirit a true understanding of who you are and what you're promising us in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. So keep your Bibles open to Psalm 11, and if you're following my outline, we're at point one, David's refuge. Verse one again, in the Lord, I take refuge. David opens this psalm by declaring that the Lord is his refuge. David is choosing to take refuge in God, and that wasn't the only option for him. Verse one keeps going, "How how then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain, uh, see some people, possibly well-meaning people, possibly even David's friends. They were telling him to run away, to flee away like a bird. But why? You know, why were they telling him to run away? What was happening? We get some clues in verse two. Uh, for look, the wicked bend their bows; they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. Uh, big kids, if you know from school, this is a metaphor. Uh, wicked people, they're hunting David down, they're chasing him around the country like an, like an archer, hunting, trying to shoot at this bird. And verse 3, this is what they say, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are you going to do, David? They laugh. What are you going to do when we take away your foundations in life, when we take away and destroy the things in life that keep you standing? Uh, I think this is quite an interesting word. there, Verse 3, foundations. I wonder what you'd say your foundations are. See, David here is most likely recounting the time when he was running away from King Saul. And you can read about this in the book of 1 Samuel. But imagine you're David. Uh, you've become so successful at what you do. Uh, so popular amongst the people. Everything you do, everything you set out to achieve, turns into gold. Uh, You win battles. You grow the country. Israel is thriving because of you. People are following you. People love you. But overnight, you go from Israel's favorite son to an overnight to to an outlawed criminal. Overnight, and now you're on the run. And it's actually not your fault. It's just because the king hates you and he's jealous of you. It's not your fault. And so the king, he's chasing you around the whole country with his his. Federal police, his royal military, they're chasing you around. All your foundations in life, gone. Your family, you probably won't see them again. Your career, gone. Your most loyal friend, Jonathan, you can't contact him because his dad is the one trying to kill you. So who do you turn to? Well, David had some options. You know, His friends were telling him to flee to his mountain. Maybe this was some military fortress they were referring to. David was a mighty military commander. He he could turn to that. But no, David chooses instead to take refuge in the Lord. See, some people choose to treat God like he's your wingman. Um, Kids, if you don't know what a wingman is, again, ask Pippi. See, some people treat God like he's their assistant. You know, you're the pilot, God's the wingman, God helps you achieve what you want. You want to get that girl or guy, you want to get that house or promotion, well, God is your wingman and he's going to help you. He can help you out. Some people treat God like he's their vending machine. Uh, You chuck some money in, say some prayers, and he'll give you what you want. But you see how big and how different God is for David. David sees God like a refugee family fleeing a war-torn country, sees their new home where they're welcomed, where they're loved, where they're safe and secure and valued and honored, where their dignity is given back to them, where they're set up for a new life. God is his refuge. But what about God makes David say this? What about God makes David choose to take refuge in him? Now, there's a story in 1 Samuel 21-22 where David, he's on the run from Saul, and he stays at this place called Nob. Uh, And the people of Nob, they, they look after him, they care for him, feed him, and then send him off. But when Saul arrives at Nob and finds out what they've done, that they've helped David, he massacres the whole village Men, women, children, animals, everyone, everything. So We're not just talking about a jealous king. We're talking about evil beyond our imagination. And perhaps this incident was on David's mind as he was you know, writing this psalm and he says that the Lord is his refuge. Uh, because the next section of the psalm, and this is point two in my, in my outline, uh, David gives us this grand picture of God in the highest place. Look at verse four. David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. For David, he sees God in the highest place, his heavenly palace, reigning on the throne, king over not just Israel, but the whole world. And God sees, look at verse. how verses four and five continue. Uh, he observes, God observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. God sees everything. No wicked action escapes him. God sees everyone, both the righteous and the wicked. Perhaps David is finding refuge in God's justice here. That God sees that God will punish Saul for what he did. God saw. He, he, He could see what Saul did. God sees both the righteous and the wicked. But not just that, God determines who is righteous and who's wicked evil and uh, good and evil are determined by God not by us uh, this word righteous pipi explained it before this this word righteous it actually appears four times in this very short psalm four times in seven verses uh, because the word that's translated justice at the end in verse 7 it's actually the same root word that's translated as righteous so this is a very important word for this psalm righteous And as Pippi explained, I think the best way to explain righteous and what it means is that it's good in God's eyes. God says that you're good. To be righteous is to be someone that God says is good. God says you're good. You're morally acceptable to Him. You're righteous. That's what it means. And it's important that it's God who says. We don't decide. God decides. God is the judge. He decides what good and evil is in his eyes. And so if you're righteous, then that's because he says that you're good, that you're morally acceptable to him. Now, there's another word that begins with R that is pretty important to our psalm too. And I wonder if you remember. It's the word that we talked about in verse 1. Refuge. Go back. Righteous and refuge, these two words, righteous and refuge, they're very important to this psalm, but if you think about it, they don't quite go together. See, how does God being righteous, verse 7, or God loving righteousness, God, a God of righteousness, how can that go with God also being a refuge? How can a righteous God be a refuge? Or C.S. Lewis famously puts it in his Narnia books, would you feel safe around a lion? See, in our eyes, we think we're okay. You know, morally speaking, we're decent people. We're not perfect, but no one is, right? You know, at least we're not like Saul who massacred all those people. We're decent people, living, you know, trying to contribute to society, trying to leave, live peacefully with each other. Morally speaking, we should be acceptable to God. Except... Remember that the word righteous means that God decides. God says whether you're good. He decides, not us. And look at verse 7 again. The Lord is righteous. So if righteous is the standard for God's morality, if righteous is used to describe God himself, do you think it could be used to describe you? Do you think righteous could be used to describe you and your moral actions? And the stakes are pretty high, aren't they? Now, listen to verse 6. This is arguably the most uncomfortable verse in this psalm. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. There seems to only be two categories to God. You're either righteous or you're wicked. And verse 6 is a promise to those whom God says are wicked. It's a promise for destruction. What do you do when you come to a Bible verse like this? I think one temptation that we have is to play it down. You know, it's not exactly like that the fire and the brimstone. It's just a metaphor, right? It's not exactly like that. But the thing is, this picture of coals and sulfur burning down, God's actually already done that before. Do you remember Sodom? Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember how those cities were destroyed? See, this is a warning for us, verse 6. It's an uncomfortable warning, but it's a necessary one, and I would argue even a loving one. Because do you remember what Abraham did in Genesis 18 when God told him he was going to destroy Sodom? He was pleading to God, wasn't he? He says, God, if there are 50 righteous people, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, you won't destroy it, will you? And God says, no, I won't destroy Sodom if I find 50 righteous people. Now remember, Abraham keeps Cutting the number down, you know, 40 righteous people, 10, 5. And God keeps saying, No, I won't destroy Sodom if I find just five righteous people. But in the end, we realize there wasn't even one righteous person, everyone was wicked. And so God destroyed Sodom. Uh, do you guys know what these are? Kids, do you know what these are? Uh, there's, they're train signals. They're signals for trains. I used to be a rail engineer. Uh, if you're driving a train and you see these red lights, it means stop. Don't go past this point. You know, there's a train on the other side. You probably can't see it. Stop, otherwise you'll crash. And when you know, trains crash, it's not, it's not good. It's bad. Imagine a train driver saying, uh, you know, these, these signals, they're not for me. It's for the other drivers who aren't as good as me. You know, it's for them. I don't need to. I don't need this. I don't need to stop. Would you want to be in that driver's train? See, when you think you're good enough for God, you're actually in the most danger of missing this warning in verse 6. The question is, who is righteous? Who is righteous? There's no one righteous, not even David. Now, you know, in verse 2, David gives us this description of the wicked person. Did you know verse 2 could actually be an accurate picture of David himself? Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then David sets out to hunt down her husband Uriah so that he doesn't find out what happened. And David has Uriah murdered. Uriah is shot dead with an arrow in his heart, just like verse 2 describes. And the hunter, the one who bent the bow back, set the arrow against the string to shoot at uriah that was the great king david david the guy who wrote psalms for the bible the king of israel even david is unrighteous david is wicked not even david can sing this psalm so do you think you can do you think you've got better credentials for righteousness than david How would you finish this sentence? I'm righteous because, dot, dot, dot. Because what? Because you don't swear? I'm righteous because, because what? Because I help a lot of people? Because I serve at church? See, nothing you do and nothing you can do will make you righteous before God. The Bible says we're all unrighteous. In God's eyes, we're all wicked. And friends, this is a huge problem. This is a big problem. Do you see the tension in this psalm? How can a righteous God be a refuge for unrighteous, wicked people? How can a God who loves justice and vows to punish wickedness, how can that God be a refuge for people that he deems as wicked? This is the tension of Psalm 11. And this tension in Psalm 11 can only be resolved in the gospel that it's pointing towards. Again, God gives us the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ, his son. The answer is the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In Jesus, the righteous one died for the unrighteous, that's the gospel. See, There's a a difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says there's a line that divides good people and bad people. And we, the religious group, the religious institution, we get to set this line. And I, by doing good things, I can move closer to this line. I can even cross this line into the, the good people group. And when I cross into this line, because I've done enough good things, then God has to accept me. God has to accept me. Now, the secular, secular person comes along and says, there is no line. You just made that up. There's no line. The secular person says, I get to set my own line. And you get to set your own line. You get, to set, you get to set that line where you want it to be. There is no God. And even if there is, who is he to judge me? But do you see what the gospel says? The gospel says there is a God. And God, not us, God, not a human institution, God sets the line between righteous and unrighteous. Because he rules and judges the world that he created. And we're all on the unrighteous side. We've all replaced God, our creator, with something else. We've all chosen to worship God, uh, something else instead of God, sorry. We've all chosen to worship idols. That's the heart of sin and unrighteousness. But on the righteous side, there's only one person, one man, Jesus Christ. And this righteous man died he chose to die for the unrighteous, so that the unrighteous can come to God, so that the unrighteous can find refuge in the righteous God. See, in Christ, this tension of righteous and refuge in Psalm 11, it's resolved. Christ is our righteousness and our refuge. When you repent, And turn to Jesus and accept his death on the cross for you. His spirit makes you one with him by faith. So that Christ takes your sin and guilt and shame and unrighteousness, as Pippi demonstrated before. And Christ clothes you. He covers you with his righteousness. So that when God sees you, he sees Christ. He sees Christ and his righteousness. And God says, you're good. You're good because of my son. See, if you believe the gospel, you can say, I'm righteous because Christ died for me. I deserve God's judgment, but I'm righteous. I'm good in his eyes. I'm good in God's eyes, not because of anything I've done, but only because Christ died for me. Uh, We've been reminded of the bushfires coming up, potentially, right? Uh, You know what they say, right? If you're ever caught out in the bush, there's a fire coming, you can't get out. They say, fall on the ground that's already been burnt. You know, that's the safest place. That's the refuge from the fire, because fire can't burn what has already been burnt. In the same way, since Christ has taken the punishment for our sin, God won't punish us on the final day, because Christ has taken our punishment. It would make God unjust to punish sins twice, See, the only refuge from God's judgment is Christ. Uh, Psalm 11 has given us a picture of judgment that often we're tempted to just ignore, right? But if you're a Christian and you ignore or forget this doctrine of judgment, I guarantee that you'll slowly lose your love and thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. See, unless you realize that Christ saves you from God's wrath and judgment, God will always be your wingman or your vending machine and never your refuge. Unless you realize where, what Jesus saves you from, unless you realize what he saves you from, you will never truly appreciate the gospel. Now, Psalm 11 finishes with this black and white picture of the future, the eternal future. Yeah, we're all very good at preparing for the near future, aren't we? You know, most of us have made plans already for the school holidays coming up. Some of us have even planned for next year. You know, Kids going to a new school, perhaps going into the next grade, the next thing in your career or your holiday plans. But if you've never yet prepared for your eternal future, if you haven't yet worked out where you stand before God, can I please urge you to, to do that? Please do that. He, Jesus is offering to be your righteousness and your refuge from the coming judgment. It's your choice whether you want to take refuge in him or not. But did you notice that Psalm 11 finishes with a picture that's even better than refuge? Verse 7 The upright will see his face. The upright will see his face. If you trust in Jesus and you're clothed with his righteousness, he's not just your refuge. You get to see his face you will see his face you will get to stand face to face with god himself how incredible is that you no know, once moses the great moses he asked god to show him his face and god said no no man can see his face or they'll die but this god sent his son into the world And this Son of God suffered so badly, so badly, that the prophet Isaiah says that we had to turn our faces away from Him. That's how disfigured, that's how shame, how shameful His suffering on the cross was. My friends, it's because of that suffering that we can look forward with certainty to that final day when we stand before this God, righteous in His eyes. And we get to see His face, And speak to him face to face. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? Let's pray. Let's pray. Holy God, how kind and gracious are you to us, people who are wicked and deserve your judgment. Thank you for offering us a refuge in your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us. Thank you that he offers to clothe us with his righteousness so that we can stand before you on that final day and see your face. Lord, we just long for that day. Keep our eyes and hearts fixed on eternity. Help us to be prepared for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.